Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Welcome again. Happy Easter to each and every one of you. Uh, if we've not yet met, my name is Christian. I'm the lead pastor here in the Grove, and it's uh, just a great honor to get to celebrate together. This is a big day for us. Every other day is also important, but this is the day that changes all those other ones. And so we're excited to get to be together. I want to mention a few things. If you are our guest this morning, if this is your first or second time with us, um, you should have gotten one of these when you came in. It's a program. You can open that up. You'll find in there some things that are happening. Lots of great opportunities in these next few weeks to get connected, get to meet some people, have some good times together, uh, get to learn a little bit. So got a lot of cool things going on. I invite you to check that out and then check out uh, that QR code on the back will take you to all the stuff that's happening and you can, you can see what's there and and RSVP and, and do all of that. Also in front of you is a survey. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but um, that'll be an opportunity for us to all kind of take stock of what God's doing in our lives right now. So that's in front of you. And then a giving envelope. Please feel no obligation to give. There's a, a group here that, that helps make the ministry move forward. Uh, we give sacrificially and, and just out of what God has given to us. Um, but if you want to be a part of helping move the mission forward, you fill out that envelope and uh, you can drop that in that offering box there in the back on your way out. And that said, I want to talk a little bit about us as, as humans, right? I, mean, I want you to think about how many conversations maybe started something like this. Hey, <clears throat> did you hear? Or you're never going to believe this. What had happened was, or, you know, once upon a time, you probably didn't have a ton of once upon a time conversations this week, but those are the kinds of things that often we find ourselves having, those kinds of discussions. And it, it's because I think one of the markers of humanity for all time and, and through all places is that we are shaped by the stories that we tell and the stories that we hear. And has a profound impact, the stories that we tell and the stories that we hear. So I want to give you this story of today, why we've gathered here today, just give you that story in a nutshell, in a, in a, but a sunflower si seed-sized nutshell, okay? Really, really tiny little nutshell. Okay, here it is. On Friday, Jesus was dead. On Sunday, he was alive. And nothing has been or ever will be the same since. Okay? That, that's the story. Now, we're going to talk a little, about, a little bit more than that, but but that is it in that sunflower seed-sized nutshell. That's the story that we celebrate. And, and here's the deal, whether you're here every Sunday or as I used to be, you only find yourself in a, a church service only on rare occasions, okay? Whatever your situation, it's still probably a pretty familiar story. But just because it's familiar doesn't mean that we understand all of its facets. And for some, the old adage is true. Familiarity breeds contempt. And so today what I, I hope to do is kind of hold up the jewel of this story of Easter and turn it ever so slightly, but hopefully just enough that regardless of how much uh, you've heard it, we'll all get a glint of its wonder and its weight in a new way. Okay, that's our hope. And so uh, let me start here. I want to take us back to, to ancient Israel. And in ancient Israel, there was a desert road that served as a major trade highway. And it, it connected Israel 
and the key Mediterranean ports of that area. And so in the weeks after the annual Jewish Passover festival, during which Jesus of Nazareth had been tried and crucified, there was a royal executive from this far-off land. He had traveled to be part of those festivities. And despite being a foreigner, he had become a follower of the Jewish religion. And so he had planned his trip to allow for him to, to not only be there for the Passover festival, but to stick around Jerusalem for several weeks to also participate in the second Jewish harvest festival known as Pentecost. Okay, so those are the two festivals. And so this man, he's traveled from far off and he, he's staying there for a number of weeks, maybe even stretched into a few months to be there for these festivals. And now he's making this long journey home, even as the new movement that bore the name of Jesus had begun to spread. Okay, so this, this thing's blowing up. Jesus has been, been tried and crucified, and, and now this movement is blowing up and spreading all around the area. And in that time, as this movement is growing, in that time, there was a man named Philip. And, that, and Philip had become one of that movement's boldest and foremost leaders. The book of Acts tells us what happened on that journey of the man from far off and, and how the paths of these two men divinely crossed. Okay, so I want to take you to that story. I want to take you to Acts chapter 8, and you'll find it on page 988 in that Bible in front of you. We want to invite you to use that. Most of the, a lot of the scripture we'll look at will be up on the screens, but we usually camp out in one spot and, and kind of travel around the Bible from there. But I will tell you, if you uh, would find it useful to have your own paper copy of God's Word, then um, we want that to be a gift from us to you. So feel free to take that home with you. You're not, you're not stealing, okay? We're, we're giving it to you. It's a gift. So again, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. I'm going to pick up in verse 26. I want you to hear what happens as these two men meet each other. Verse 26 says, An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and he went. And there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He'd come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in, this chariot, in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. And when Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. I don't know about you, but I've often felt that way reading the Bible, especially when I was first getting started. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? And Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. Okay, now, full disclosure, I'm not Philip, okay? Nowhere close. But what I want to do is piece together how Philip might have explained the good news about Jesus, starting with this passage from the prophet Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah is one of the longer books in the Bible, and, and it's filled with lots of prophecies regarding how God would finally and forever rescue his people. 
But there towards the end, Isaiah begins to describe one we've come to know as the suffering servant. He's describing the, the Messiah, the, the Savior that the, Jewish, the Jews were expecting. And it starts, this description of the suffering servant starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and, and this particular section goes through the end uh, of Isaiah 53. But specifically, the section that we just looked at there in Acts is from Acts from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Okay, that's the specific spot in Isaiah. But I want to I zoom out just a bit, and I want you to see more of how this servant is described. So Isaiah 53... Verse 3 says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Now, it's pretty clear when you read this, when, when you read this passage, again, written hundreds of years, many hundreds of years before Jesus walked this earth, but it's pretty clear when you read this that there are these unlikely parallels between the things that happen in the life of Jesus and the things that are talked about there in Isaiah. But smack in the middle is this idea of comparing the Messiah, this suffering servant, to a lamb. And I want you to realize that the importance of a lamb being led to the slaughter, actually, it finds its beginnings much earlier, much earlier in God's work of saving his people. I mentioned that the events of Jesus's death took place in the time known as the Passover, this festival. And it's a festival that had been, uh, the Jews had been doing for thousands of years at this point. And so let's go back to Philip and that Ethiopian, right? Philip could have, starting with Isaiah, reminded the Ethiopian that the origins of that festival are described in the book of Exodus. Exodus is a book that, that tells about the great rescue of God's people after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And, and the Exodus involved millions of Israelites escaping the charging Egyptian armies by miraculously walking on dry land through the Red Sea. Okay, maybe you saw the Prince of Egypt. Okay, that's, that's what we're talking about. Or, you know, Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston. That, that's what we're talking about. But just prior to this rescue, God gave them, gave the, the Jewish people these instructions. Exodus 12, 3, he says, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month they must each select an animal of the flock, according to their father's families. One animal per family. It goes on, it says, you are to keep it, the, the animal, until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. Okay, now, God asked, what was going on is that God is asking each family that it would trust him for this salvation that he's about to bring. Okay, he tells them, I'm, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna save you from, from this slavery and from the oppression of the Egyptians. He says, but, but 
you have to believe me, trust me. And so to do that, you're going to make this sacrifice. And you're going to mark your home with the animal's blood as an indication of your trust in God. Okay, that's what's going on there. There's a lot of background to that, but, but understand that's what God is asking them to do. So Philip could have reminded about that history of the Passover. And then Philip could have told that Ethiopian how just a few years earlier, a man showed up in Israel with a really interesting backstory. He happened to be the cousin of Jesus, um, but also an unusual fashion sense. Okay, he's, he's a little odd. His name is John, and he, he becomes known as the baptizer. And one day as John is teaching, Jesus arrives on the scene, and John stops what he's doing to draw attention to Jesus. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in that moment, John is saying, hey, you remember that Passover lamb that we sacrifice year after year after year after year? Actually, that lamb was pointing to a man. And, and it's actually pointing to that same suffering servant that Isaiah had talked about. And now, here he is. So then Philip may have explained to the, to the Ethiopian how Jesus spent the last three years amazing people with his compassion and his power, announcing that he was ushering in a whole new way of being human. That he was declaring and demonstrating that he was actually God himself. And so then Philip would have told the eunuch how just weeks earlier, just, just a few weeks earlier, Jesus had been arrested and tried for blasphemy. He would have explained how when on trial, as the charges were being leveled against him by the Jewish officials in the presence of Pontius Pilate, the, the Roman governor, how Jesus, as it says in Matthew 27, didn't answer him on even one charge so that the governor was quite amazed. And then at this point, maybe Philip would have reminded the Ethiopian again of Isaiah's words regarding the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before her shearers. He did not open his mouth. And then Philip probably would have explained how Jesus was brutally crucified, that he was verified dead by Roman executioners and laid in a tomb. And as he likely watched that man's face fall in horror and confusion, Philip would have told the Ethiopian that though on Friday Jesus was dead, on Sunday that grave was empty and Jesus was alive. Now, maybe the man was dubious about the facts, wondering, ah, come on, People don't just come back to life after that much time in a grave. And maybe Philip explained then that in the 40 days following Jesus' resurrection, Jesus was actually seen by hundreds of people. Hundreds of people who had known him prior to his death. And now we're saying, wait, we saw you die, and now here you are again. Or maybe the Ethiopian simply couldn't wrap his mind around the why of these events. Why would Jesus, if he was God, subject himself to such a thing? And at this point, perhaps Philip recounted something that he had not been present for, but which others had told him about. See, maybe he was going to remind him about one of the many instances that show us that Jesus understood and embraced that the sacrifices of God's people for thousands of years had actually pointed to him 
as the ultimate sacrifice. So perhaps Philip addresses the Ethiopian's question of why with what Jesus in the days leading up to his crucifixion told his followers in John 15. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Now, think about that. Lay down his life for his friends. At this point, I want to pause from Philip and the Ethiopian. I want to ask you, that idea, laying down your life for your friends, aren't those the stories that grab us? The the stories of, of one person laying down his or her life for his friends. Right. Think about it, right? We can go back to, to Boromir from Lord of the Rings, to Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, from George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, right? Sacrificing his dreams for the sake of his family, to Russell Cass in Independence Day, right? Flying that airplane into the alien ship, from the Dark Knight to Groot. One more time saying, I am Groot and laying down his life for his friends. From the T-800, the Terminator, to the Iron Giant. From Ellen Ripley in Alien, to Katniss Everdeen offering herself as tribute to the Hunger Games on behalf of her sister. And you know, if we're thinking about these kinds of stories, we've got to go, you know, even Jack Dawson in Titanic, right? Even he makes the cut, (laughs) a sacrifice. Though that question persists, right? Did he really have to? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> right, here's the thing. Each of those characters, and, and countless more like them, they, they grab our attention. And more than that, they grab our imagination, and, and, and they, they grab that sense enough in, in us of what is truly good. That's because heroic, loving sacrifice is compelling. Even more compelling is when we encounter true stories of sacrifice. Right? Stories like those of the heroes who charged into the World Trade Center, the, the heroes who said, let's roll on 9-11. Right? Those, those kinds of stories of sacrifice. Stories like ro- those of Rosa Parks who refused to give up that seat. Stories like the men who charged the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. Stories like that of John Robert Fox, who in 1944 was second lieutenant in the 92nd Infantry. He was fighting the Nazis in the small village of Somokolonia, Tuscany. As one recap describes the events that would lead to his posthumous Medal of Honor, the village had been overrun by Nazis, and Americans were in retreat. Fox found a house to hide in, and from the second floor, he used his radio to contact his colleagues. He called for artillery fire to be directed at the village in order to give the U.S. forces time to retreat, regroup, and then launch a counterattack. Fox even specifically ordered a barrage of fire on his exact position. The gunner who received the message pointed this out to him, assuming it must be some mistake. And Fox, however, simply said, fire it. There's more of them than there are of us. And those were the infamous last words of a true American hero. So today, I want us to see, without taking anything at all away from those great sacrifices, those are true sacrifices, without taking anything away from those, I want us to see what Philip knew and was passing along to that Ethiopian, that Easter is the truest story of love. 
It's the truest story of love. And I want us to understand two things about this truest love. Here they are. It's a love that both transcends our understanding and also transforms our living. It does both of those things. It transcends our understanding. What, what I mean is, it's a love that's greater than we realize. And it's a love that's greater than every other real or imagined tale of sacrificial love. In John 15, 13, Jesus is literally saying, okay, literally the words are, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for those he loves. Right? Now to translate that, to say, to lay down your life for your friends, it's, it's natural to equate friends with loved ones. They should be one and the same. But Jesus' love transcends our understanding. Listen to what we're told in Romans 5. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Jesus didn't go to the cross because there was something in us that deserved having him sacrifice for us. Notice, we are neither just nor good. Apart from Christ, we are all sinners alike. What that means is that all of us are natively at odds with God. We're plagued by a rebellious attitude that keeps us operating in selfish self-dependence, despite God owing God everything. We owe Him everything. And we're capable of great things. Make no mistake, as human beings, we're capable of amazing things because God made us. But we constantly miss the mark of even our own sense, right? And forget God's standard. Even our own sense of what is right and wrong, we, we miss that mark. We fail to live up to our own standards. But Jesus loves his enemies so that we can become his friends. And furthermore, Jesus doesn't just put up with us. He, he actually puts our sin upon himself. Remember Isaiah 53, again, verses 7 and 8. Specifically, verse 7. Like a sheep, silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. Right? He did not open his mouth. And remember, Matthew 27, 14. He didn't answer him on even one charge. Why the silence? Right? If Jesus was there simply on trial for his own guilt or innocence, it would have been perfectly acceptable for him to say, Hey, wait, you're accusing me of things that I'm not guilty of. And it would have made sense for him to offer a rebuttal. In fact, Pontius Pilate, the governor, is amazed at the silence, is what the scripture said, because he believes that Jesus is probably innocent. And all Jesus has to do is speak up for himself. That's, that's really all it would have taken, him just saying, hey, no, 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 you, you got it wrong. Let me, like these guys, they're just, this is false charges. And if he just spoke up for himself, trial over, most likely. So why doesn't he say anything? Why is he silent like a lamb before its shears? Isaiah tells us, 53.12, he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. See, Jesus doesn't say a word because in that moment and in that situation, Jesus is not there representing himself. He's being counted among the rebels. He's representing you and me. 
He took our sin upon himself. And so when the charges of blasphemy, of rebellion against the ways of God are being leveled against him, he's not answering on behalf of Jesus, of Nazareth. Okay, that, that's not what's going on there. He instead is silently accepting the charges on behalf of every single one of us. And there is nothing in that moment that he can say because, friends, you and I are guilty. The lamb is silent, but there's the good news. See, the lamb is silent because the lamb is standing in for each of us. And not only did he accept the charges, he accepted the full penalty of those charges. That's a love that transcends our understanding. But it's also a love that is intended to transform our living. See, Easter is the celebration of the death of death on the cross. And it's the celebration of the validation of an everlasting and all-satisfying hope through the resurrection. God promised through Isaiah that this suffering servant, okay, listen to the description of the servant. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. That's what happened on that Easter Sunday. He was raised and lifted up and greatly exalted coming out of that tomb. There's nobody who's ever done that the way Jesus has done it, never to die again. And you and I, we, we spend so much time pursuing success, trying to lift ourselves up. But it's only in Jesus' exaltation that we find our own. I want you to hear what the resurrection means. I want you to hear what's offered to you and I only and fully through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see, friends, life in Christ is intended to be altogether different. It's a hope for eternity, but it's a hope that is intended to change the way we live even here. Eternity doesn't break in someday. Eternity breaks in right now. It broke in when Jesus came. On Friday, he was dead. On Sunday, he was alive, and nothing has been or ever will be the same since. This is why that same eunuch, upon hearing this good news and seeing a pond along the side of that desert road, said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop, 
And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. The eunuch, despite a very different background than Philip, came to see that this story was the truest story, and that it was his story. He came to believe that Jesus was indeed the lamb, the lamb that the Passover had foreshadowed, the lamb that Isaiah had foretold, the lamb for whom John the Baptist had been the forerunner, and as Revelation 5.12 tells us, the lamb who will rightly receive glory and honor forever. He is the one who was counted among the rebels so that our rebel sin would not be counted against us. He is the one who has loved his enemies by laying down his life and delights to turn us, who have made ourselves his enemies, into friends. There is no truer and greater love. Author Jared Wilson has said, if the resurrection isn't true, we should all stay home. Religion makes a lame hobby. I wholeheartedly agree. Guys, I have an engineering degree. I can go... We could do some other stuff. But I believe the tomb is empty. And that changes everything. If the resurrection is true, if this is the truest story of love, it must transform our living. As the church historian Jaroslav Pelikan has said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. So I ask you today, do you, will you confess that Jesus has laid down his life for you? And do you, or will you trust that Jesus has conquered death to give you life? If so, there is great, great reason to celebrate. Let's pray together. Father, we did thank you. It's difficult for us to wrap our heads around, but we, we must thank you that the grave was filled. We thank you that the grave is now empty and that there really is a forever hope that we can be saved from our sin and rescued and, and restored to a right relationship with you as a part of your family forever. I pray today would be a resurrection day for some and that it would be a, a celebration of a continued restoring in each of us. God, work in us and help us to know what it is, what our next step with you would be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us. And join us again next week for another podcast from The Grove Church. Have a great day.